This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alistair Thomas, and welcome to our podcast. This week, we're back to a full complement of energy voicers. I'm joined by our Africa editor, Ed Reed, and our Asia-Pacific editor, Damon Evans. Gents, before we get into the global energy conversation, it is now December, Michael Bublé's on, Santa has risen once again from his tinsel-lined crypt, uh, and demands are being made to put the Christmas tree up in Energy Voice Towers. Now, where do we stand on that? I think it's too soon. I mean, I, I agree, Alistair. I agree entirely. But unfortunately, my wife pushed me over the edge oh. and I put the tree up on Sunday. So I've fallen already. I'm, I'm, I was the first the first brick to fall. <laughs> we can't we can't suffer weakness in this uh, team. Ed. You, you know that. I'm out. How, how, how do you feel on the... I suppose Edward of Christmas is, is observed as, as widely, I suppose, in Malaysia and in, in Bali. Um, Damon, how do you how do you feel about Christmas and Christmas trees at this point? Well, how do I... Yeah, in, Indonesia is predominantly Muslim, so, um, yeah, not not so um, uh, popular, shall we say. But, uh, yeah, we're discussing... My wife is discussing buying a Christmas tree for the first time in a long time, so I might put it up around the 20th, 23rd. If we get one, if we buy one, okay. But, um, so twenty twenty third is that's 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 the the far end of the of the spectrum there. So I think I think possibly this weekend I might I might fall um, and and the dominoes might continue to crash thereafter. It'll be seventeen and John Lewis adverts and all the rest mm. of it. So stay strong, uh, brethren, as, as as strong as you can in these these trying holiday times. So we've got plenty for you uh, this week, dear listeners. Uh, litigation in Nigeria. Uh, Bond villains in the North Sea, but we will start this week uh, with a move from Malaysia's state-owned operator, which would appear uh, to be appeasing ConocoPhillips and Shell over some losses and a, a problematic project. Damon, if if you could bring us up to speed. Yeah. So Petronas uh, earlier this week officially announced they've awarded front-end engineering and design contracts to a consortium of JJ JGC Samsung Heavy Industries and another. Uh, venture led by Saipem um, for a third floating liquefied natural gas project off offshore Malaysia. Um, the the two consortiums will be competing over the next ten months. It's a dual feed design competition, and uh, the winner will get to um, go into the construction phase and um, uh, the EPC phase for this uh, liquefied um, floating liquefied natural gas project, which. Uh, IHS market reckons will cost between 2.5 and 3.5 billion dollars hmm. um, overall for the for the project. Um, it's it's interesting in a way the history behind it. The 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 floater is designed to process gas from the the uh, KBB field Kebangangan, if I can pronounce that correctly. I think you got it. I think Apolo- you got it. Apologies. We got it. We got it. Yeah, <laughs> I call it KBB. And um, and that field is um, owned by ConocoPhillips, Shell, and uh, Petronas Charigali, which is the the upstream arm of uh, Petronas, the Malaysian national oil company. Uh, it started up in 2014, and um, the gas was shipped via pipeline 130 kilometers to um, the the state of Sa- of Sabah, and then Petronas built um, a pipeline 500 kilometers 500 odd kilometers to the Malaysian LNG export plant at Bintulu, next door. Uh, that pipeline has failed to work properly since 2014. It's had numerous explosions and fires, and uh, has been shut down since January 2020. Um, yet to be restarted, possibly in 2023. So. Um, 
the KBB partners, which includes Shell, uh, Shell and ConocoPhillips, uh, have not been able to uh, fully monetize their gas. And obviously, they must be a, a little bit upset, I would imagine. So um, there's already one floating liquefied uh, natural gas um, unit over the field at the moment, but the capacity on it's not big enough to process all the gas. So, I f- so we think this move is, um, you know, it's Petronas uh, trying to solve the problem and, and provide a route to commercialization for this gas, which is effectively being stranded for, for or, or not producing at, at full capacity for, for many years now. And there must have been arbitrations and court cases perhaps behind the scenes because we don't really hear anything about it in, in the media or in the press. Mm. Yeah, it looks like it looks like you've it, it has been a, a a less than transparent process from from what I can gather from from your articles. What, what what kind of troubles have they had with this this pipeline? Just as far as you can gather, leaks. I would I would presume among other things. So there, there's there you know a lot of it. You know we we don't really know the truth what is happening, but we know that Petronas engaged uh, engaged an Indian contractor. Uh, I'm not sure of the name off the top of my head. Uh, there's talk that the welds in the pipelines were dodgy. There's also talk that it was either poorly designed or poorly built, and that they didn't take in the topography of, uh, you know, this is jungle territory. There's a lot of landslides. Hmm. The pipeline moves about and ruptures. Um, but I, I would imagine if I was ConocoPhillips and Shell, I would be saying, well, hey, Petronas, you're supposed to be managing this. It's your responsibility. And and um, and, and this saga has been going on for years now. The pipeline started, stopped, started, stopped. So, um, you know, it's a major. And it's also meant that the LNG exports from Bintulu, um, one of the biggest exporting facilities in the world, or these days less so. But, you know, that that's not been able to export as much LNG as possible. So a, a lot of... A lot of unanswered questions and um, a very big price tag to fix um, well, for the solution. Yeah. So FLNG is uh, quite, a, quite a fun option, isn't it? I mean, I suppose there's always that question, though, of, of, of where the, sort of the work goes on, right? I mean, presumably, you know, it would inevitably end up being sort of like a hull and, and, and sort of top size being built in sort of China or Korea rather than kind of keeping that work local. Is, I mean, presumably that's, that's the case, right? Yeah, I would think so. I think the first two Petronas floaters were built in South Korea. And interestingly as well, Petronas are calling this a nearshore floating liquefied natural gas plant in the press release. They kind of steered clear of calling it an FLNG until the very last sentence when they talked about their total um, capacity. This will be their third floater. But because it will be nearshore, they're saying there'll be a lot less downtime because it will be protected. And I think it will be you know, very close to a jetty. So it's not going to be out in the ocean like the the uh, the first two um, petronas floating lng units and the other thing is if they do get the pipeline working again that connects to the malaysian lng export terminal they'll have a lot of flexibility um because with with this unit because they could either then move it somewhere else and use make use of it if the pipeline's working or you'll have spare pipeline capacity to to monetize other gas deposits so this could be a, a boon for uh investment in exploration offshore saba which you know people are very skeptical about investing in in gas exploration because you can't commercialize it you know unless it's oil focused exploration there's been a, a lack of interest so you, you do have that flexibility yeah and, and I, I think it also saves them a shed load of cash i mean i think uh, if you look at the cost of so any's uh, building a, a an flng project offshore mozambique it's you know deep water it's something like 2000 meters i think it's about 7 billion dollars 
Um, so if your 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 cost is what was it so two and a half to three and a half something like that, it sounds like it's going to be uh, quite a quite a cost effective way of doing it to, to to keep it in sort of shallower waters. Yeah, I think so. And it's um, I don't know what the capacity of the one is you just mentioned, but this one's going to be a minimum two million tons per year. And um, it would be interesting to find out if it could work. And presumably, it will be able to work offshore as well, or perhaps they would have to modify it. But um, I, I would imagine that, that they will have the flexibility to move it. With with that extra two million tons per year, Damon, is that does that take us to the kind of originally planned production rates, or are we still looking like this will not quite get to what had originally been been hoped for this KBB project? Well. I think there is already there's already one floater at the KBB field, which I believe has a capacity of about 1.2 million tons per year, and I think this second floater, uh, almost the entire capacity, would be used at the KBB field. So I think it would be pretty much dedicated to that project. Okay, well we will leave things uh, there for now and keep an eye on it. Um, next up, we're off to Nigeria. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice. The industry experts who investigate and report to a global audience on what matters in oil, gas and energy transition. We help organisations understand the geopolitical, economic and financial factors that underpin market events and give you a view on what's coming over the horizon. As a listener to this podcast, you can get a free trial of energyvoice.com, giving you two weeks of unrestricted access to the latest crucial news and insight. The trial is entirely without obligation, we don't want your credit card, and there's no auto-enrolment at the end. Simply email trials at energyvoice.com to get the best market analysis in the world free. Check the episode notes for details. Okay, so Nigerian oil spills have been, uh, unfortunately, in the headlines quite prominently in recent weeks. Uh, and we've got this wave of, uh, of asset sales, Ed, which may well pave the way for more, well, more legal action from communities over these, these oil-related uh, damages. Yeah, that's right. So I, uh, there was a, an interesting report this week uh, from Stakeholder Democracy Network, uh, you know, sort of raising the, the sort of the prospect of these uh, this sort of wave of, uh, of sort of divestments from the IOCs who are keen to get out of Nigeria for a variety of reasons. Uh, you know, the onshore assets in particular. You know, there are security problems, there are legacy issues. It's uh, it's a tough operating environment, and it's it's fairly high cost. You know, so it's 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 kind of a attempting. Uh, sort of uh, asset sale opportunity um and, and presumably also you know the idea of leaving some of those uh, sort of legal issues behind is, is is quite an appealing one but as uh, this 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 webinar and, and report has said this week actually it may just spur further legal action um as you know communities sort of realize that um that, that there is an opportunity to you know sort of uh to, to try and seek justice now Whereas after the after the sale has gone through, it will be more confusing. I mean, I think if you if I think the the upshot seems to be that if you can prove that the oil damage was there before the sale took place, then clearly that you know is is sort of belongs to the sort of the the, the company that has, that has exited. And we're seeing a number of cases uh, where 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 companies, especially Shell, I suppose, are being pursued in the in this regard. But obviously, once that sale has gone through. 
the 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 game changes right and if uh you know there's there's a pipeline leak or you know as we saw at the beginning of november and you mentioned um those the you know a, a wellhead malfunctions and starts spewing out uh thousands of barrels of uh, of oil per day into into rivers then you then the communities will have no chance to sort of seek redress uh from the the the, the IOCs that have exited so in this particular instance uh ITO bought a package of assets from Shell in 2015 for something like 2 billion dollars so a fair fairly good amount of cash um and since then this this wellhead has has, has not been used as i understand it and it uh developed a, a fault at the beginning of the month of November rather, and is um, it's, it's just sending out an amazing amount of oil into the, into the local environment. Um, so the communities are obviously upset, and they're you know they they want to you know sort of get environmental remediation, clean up, probably also compensation. I'd have thought that would probably be justified, um, but it's going to be tough to get it from Shell, and. You know, there's also going to be a question of whether ITO or other, you know, local independents would be able to afford the sort of work that companies like Shell would be able to. I mean, if you remember, Shell, you know, kind of committed to a, a sort of a fairly serious amount of cleanup in uh, in Agonia Land some years ago, and that and that work is ongoing. Um, but could uh, you know a new local uh, Nigerian independent bring the same amount of cash to bear i mean we know that ito has is is failing to service some of its debts has failed to service some of its debts in the past that that to that it used to uh secure the cash to, to buy the shell assets in the first place so there is a the, it, it does seem like that rather than moving these iocs away and avoiding those sort of legal liabilities there's a chance it may spur more i mean i think you know the, there is a sense that you know the, the door may be closing and uh, if uh, if you want some compensation, then then now is the time to go uh, go seeking it. Yeah, I mean, uh, as as I, as I hope to get to in a, in a moment, uh, in the UK, it's it's not quite the same issue. But if a company was to default on its decommissioning liabilities, for example, that liability would kind of fall to the partner or indeed a previous operator. But so so is is there a case for that here? Is is the, it, it doesn't sound like there's liability in perpetuity in terms of if the spill happened on your watch, then you will necessarily have to pay for it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um the the answer is that the that decommissioning has been largely neglected in Nigeria. I mean, I think, you know, that 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 it it, it seems to be a case of not enough attention has been paid to it. The, the, there is some new legislation uh, that's been brought in recently, the PIA, which has come after I think something like twenty years of waiting. So, and it and it and it does try and make some make some progress on the decommissioning uh, front. I mean, it still feels like it's an issue that isn't necessarily uh, closely examined enough, right? Mm. I think there is a sense that. Um, that 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 companies are not held to account sufficiently, and I think that's you know that there, there is a sense that that is applies both to IOCs and to to these local independents. As I understand it, the PIA I think sets up decommissioning funds, um, so a sort of escrow accounts, things like that. Um, but obviously, you know, Nigeria has been producing oil since 1950s, uh, so we're quite late in the game. So. It, it is going to be a, a challenge, and and obviously, you know, as uh, it looks like Nigeria's production, you know, maybe sort of maybe declining. Who knows what the future may bring? 
and Nigeria is not spending that money. It's not spending those, those those oil revenues on, you know, setting them aside for things like decommissioning or even for things like, you know, spending in sort of the, you know, renewable energy. It's 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 primarily really kind of going into servicing uh, Nigerian debt. Mm. So there is there's a, there's a host of issues that are that, that seem to be kind of uh, that seem to be kind of coming to fruition, and I think you know it's it's going to be a real challenge. But as you can see, I mean, it seems like uh, this is a problem that needs to be solved, right? I mean, I think you know clearly as we're seeing, uh, you know, with ITO, I think there've been reports of about another company, you know, having having some issues. There are you know legitimate concerns around the extent to which maintenance is you know possibly not quite up to scratch. Uh, whether that's you know the IOCs or the local independence fault, it's obviously one of those issues that is going to be uh, highly uh, highly litigious, I imagine. <laughs> but um, you know it, it it does seem like it's a real challenge and. For now, as has been the case for the last 50 years, the people bearing the brunt of that are the people who live in the Niger Delta, who are, you know, traditionally fisher, you know, you know, live off fishing, off agriculture. And these are the people who are sort of at the sharp end, who look like they are, frankly, going to be stiffed again, right? I mean, I think, you know, it's it's it just feels, you know, really tragic. I mean, you mm. know, looking at some of these pictures of this, uh, this ITO spill and, the amount of oil that's coming out of it is extraordinary. And as I understand it, ITA's brought in uh, Schlumberger, Boots and Coots, I think. Was it Halliburton? Halliburton, I think it Halliburton. was, yeah. Um, to, to try and, you know, tackle the problem. But it's still, I mean, it was still flowing yesterday. So Gosh. it's, um, you know, that's a month that it's been uh, that it's been pumping out oil into the Niger Delta for. Um, so, it yeah, it just feels, you know, really sad. And like... It's it's only going to get worse. Uh, are they able to collect the oil? It, it, where's the or is the oil just floating down into the ecosystem? Yeah, so they've they've put up you know sort of barriers and they're you know they're obviously trying to you know bring about some you know so they're trying to tackle it. And but there have been reports of oil being you know discovered sort of further down the uh, down the river out to sea. Uh, obviously, ITO uh, I think denies that this oil is connected to their leaking wellhead. Obviously, there are other, you know, leak issues in in the Niger Delta, so it it may be hard to entirely pinpoint it. But yeah, I mean, it, it feels like progress isn't coming fast enough. Okay, yeah, we'll we'll keep an eye on that. So, uh, thank you very much, uh, Ed. Next up, we're talking late life in the UK North Sea. In this uniquely challenging environment, the global energy sector is looking to its leaders to drive the conversation forward. Companies at the forefront of our industry need to communicate how their expertise can help clients and the wider community now and when the market rebounds. Energy Voice is the trusted voice leading the global energy conversation on coronavirus, the oil price crash and the energy transition. Over the past month, energyvoice.com has been read over a million times. We reach 1.4 million people on social and more than 12,500 people subscribe to Energy Voice. Because what we say matters. And because energy is our language, we can offer you a unique integrated marketing service to ensure your expertise gets maximum exposure. A comprehensive suite of content services brings your message to life, expert consultation hones that message to perfection, and we have opportunities to share it across editorial, special reports, video, podcasts, webinars, and display advertising. 
To find out more about speaking to over 1 million qualified users in global energy through our peerless digital news and insight platform, visit energyvoice.com slash content hyphen services. We want to help get your message to the right people. And in these challenging times, we're pleased to offer a 25% introductory discount on new campaigns. For this and more, energyvoice.com slash content hyphen services. Okay, so I've got a couple of stories for you this week. Uh, One is about a Bond villain, the other is about a couple of big M&A deals, but they're both ultimately about extending the life of kind of older assets in the North Sea. So watch me try to stitch these two together. Um, I'll leave the villain till the end, I think. Um, So starting with uh, a big M&A deal, um, JX Nippon and Neo Energy signed a deal earlier last week, actually, selling the kind of vast majority of JX Nippon's UK business away for one2 billion pounds. And that included kind of a whole host of stakes here in the UK, but it crucially didn't include the BP Andrew area, which uh, the Japanese firm JX Nippon owns about a third of. So that left some questions. Obviously, will BP do a deal to acquire Andrew? Uh, And sure enough, they they have done just that this week. So why do we care? Um, So Andrew is, you know, kind of an, an, an older asset, which until recently in the North Sea, BP was working pretty hard to offload. Last year, they'd struck a deal with Premier Oil to try to sell it for more than £400 million. However, Premier was obviously debt-ridden. They uh, tried to sweeten the deal. They moved the cost down to, I think, about £200 million in hopes of pushing this uh, divestment through. But obviously, we then had uh, the Chrysler takeover of Premier Oil, uh, now Harbour Energy, and the deal to sell Andrew fell through. So, BP were then kind of left wanting to restart the sale around January time of this year, but analysts estimated in the kind of the suppressed commodity price environment that they wouldn't actually be able to get more than 50-odd million pounds for it, I think. So, you know, the context of that is in the UK, BP have been selling off quite a lot of um, Northern North Sea fields uh, interests, very much focused on the kind of highly prospective west of Shetland area, whereas Andrew which started up, I think, in about 1996, doesn't necessarily sit very well in there. So this deal confirms, no, this is actually a core asset for BP. They're increasing their holding and presumably taking the decommissioning costs up to about 90%. So I guess the question is, then, why why make the change? Um, So Andrew, Andrew is getting ever closer to decommissioning, very close. 2026 is the timeline. And... With that, obviously, with a project like that, with a, a kind of hub project, you're, you're looking at pretty sizable decommissioning costs. And BP and Shell, they do get criticized for not being uh, transparent enough. But if you look at the UK sector now, the spread of companies on there, many are not UK domiciled. Some of, some of them you, you, you've never heard of, probably. And, and you, know, you can sell an asset to potentially avoid your decommissioning costs fine. But I guess with the regime we've got in the UK, as we covered in the podcast last week with the Fujara uh, Bray deal, if a company defaults on the decommissioning liability, it will then pass on to the partners or indeed to a previous operator. So I'm not saying this is necessarily what's happened with BP, but clearly they would have gotten offers for Andrew, um, but they know if they sell for a good deal to a firm which isn't iron tight in terms of their financial backing, those decom costs could quite possibly fall right back on BP anyway, even with 
transferable tax history. These are these are huge bills. So I think given the timeline for Andrew, they've kind of done the diligent thing here and said, you know, we're just going to take a bigger stake. We're going to steward this through decommissioning as an exemplar late life asset, show that we've got that box checked off as something on our global portfolio that you can look at and say, this is the way to do it when it comes to decommissioning. So there's a couple of issues around um, late life in the UK. Um, maximizing economic recovery is somewhat in conflict with um, with net zero. Um, but this is an interesting one to look at in terms of a big um, oil and gas major changing their tactic in the UK. And it shows that once again, we're a real hotspot for M&A here. On the other side of net zero coin is maximizing economic recovery, as I said. Um, for older assets, decommissioning is the kind of only viable way of cutting those emissions because electrification is just too costly. And for many, I think, you know, net zero is, is taking over uh, maximizing economic recovery. I, I don't think that's a stretch to say, particularly given that some companies are expecting to shut down their oil platforms sooner than expected as a consequence of the net zero plans. There's certainly more political pressure on net zero than maximizing recovery. For some hubs, you know, they are planning to electrify, electrify, but then you've got to justify that. And then you'll want to then be producing the life of the assets for for, for a bit longer, um, which kind of brings me on to uh, the, the Bond villain Jaws. So... Played by the late, great Richard Keel, uh, Jaws first appeared as a Bond adversary in 1975's The Spy Who Loved Me, later appearing in Moonraker. And someone somewhere uh, at Shell decided that would be a good name for a prospect in the North Sea. Um, and I'm going to get on to my point about that in a moment, but I just, <laughs> want to point, I just want to point out, I had assumed naturally that a prospect like Jaws would be named after Jaws, you know, the shark. Um, but Jaws, you know, Jaws is Jaws. But someone at Shell said rather cheekily, kindly emailed me to say it's actually named after the Bond villain. Um, so I had to change my lovely picture of a great white shark to um, to Richard Keel. Anyway, yeah, Jaws <laughs> is a nearby kind of uh, exploration prospect of the Shell Nelson platform in the North Sea. They're targeting 30 million barrels of oil. It's an example of what the norm is for DECOM in the UK now. They're trying to extend the life of existing assets through near field um, exploration. So... Yeah, fun fact, this is the latest in a long line of Bond names for Shell projects who have, you know, Orlov to drill next year. They've got uh, Oddjob, Scaramanga as existing prospects. Stavro was drilled around a decade ago. Any of those in your favourite um, Bond baddies, guys, who were your, who were your favourite Bond villains? I mean, Scaramanga is always, uh, is always, a, is always a firm favourite, I would say. Oh. But I, I mean, I, I guess that's, it's one of the, uh, one of, presumably one of the, the geologists' delight, isn't it? Is, is sort of trying to uh, come up with fun names for uh, exploration oh. prospects. Who doesn't love a man with a third nipple? That's what I always say. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I remember there was, uh, there was a while back, there was, a, there was a company in the Gulf of Mexico that named its prospects after the alternative names for uh, the Big Lebowski. <laughs> so there was like El Duderino and things things um which you know it, when you when you're when you're when you're stuck in a in an office for that long looking at little wavy lines obviously you're gonna you're gonna seek uh, relief where you can and i think you know fair play to them i mean apologies to the ge 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 geologist community everywhere <laughs> of course we know your job is more than wavy lines i'm just joking uh uh 
Damon, are you a Bond fan? Yeah, I used to be. Yeah, big fan. And um, yeah, going back to your picture of Jaws, when I, when I saw that in the morning, I thought, oh, that's a really cool photo. And then I clicked <laughs> back onto the site about, I don't know, 10, you know, a bit later on. And then I saw like uh, Jaws and Roger Moore there. I, I thought, know. Oh, you were having a great time with the photos today. <laughs> oh. It wasn't till today when I read the story that I that I understood what was going on. But um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, Jaws, he was, he always a bit scary with those metal teeth and hanging off cable cars attacking bond but uh i think my probably my favorite one of my favorites was odd job is it odd job the odd little job. short chap with the, the, with the hats used to fling the hat yeah yeah no i think I, th- I mean we we i always wonder who comes up with these 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 prospect names but my goodness bravo somebody take a bow yeah no i i, I had a really cool great white shark um pic- go check it out on online guys um <laughs> i had a really cool great white shark um picture set up for this story um and by the way you know we're keeping an eye on this prospect we're kind of getting off topic but you know 30 million barrels for the uk is not uh, insignificant for a kind of a tie back but anyway uh, yeah i had this picture lined up it was a great white shark i'd really i sent my wife becca oh which one do you think looks best for this uh you know this (laughs) these 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 shark pictures i go for for this story and just oh yeah go for that one it's fantastic yeah and everyone's looking at it and then so yeah i get told i know it's it's actually named after the the bond baddie ah disastrous so i mean you know maybe the next step is uh you know there's i'm sure there's a company out there who can you know start naming their prospects after spielberg films right oh, I mean, save, saving private e. ryan jaws mm. right i don't know yeah yeah i like i like it yeah. i like it et et there must be an et out there somewhere right i don't know yeah. it's possible that this uh, energy podcast has has gone um off track so it's <laughs> it's time to bring this bad boy home uh, that is it for this week's Energy Voice Out Loud. I do hope you enjoyed listening to that uh, incoherence. Um, thank you so much to Damon and Ed for joining me. I've been Alistair Thomas, and see you next time. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com Sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Outloud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Outloud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.